From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, and the Pacifica Radio Network, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. My guest is Karina Nicolau. She is the author of A Nun's Story, Searching for Meaning Inside Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam. Welcome, Karina, to Progressive Spirit. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Well, reading the word nun is different than hearing it. What kind of nun are you? Well, it's nun as in N-O-N-E, and that is what statisticians have started calling people who on surveys about which religious affiliation are they, circle none. And you were a nun from the beginning. I mean, you didn't start off with religion and say, nah, I'm checking none now. Uh, you, right. you were essentially none from day one. Yes, that's true. I was, I'm a second-generation nun. I inherited my nun status from my parents, who were both raised with a Christian affiliation, but by the time I came into the picture, had distanced themselves from Christianity. And there are different kinds of nuns. Some nuns have grown up with a religion, but in, in their adulthood or later on in their years have decided to distance themselves from a religious affiliation. And then there are some nuns who may consider themselves agnostic or atheist, but most nuns, for the most part, actually are quite spiritual, open to religion, religious concepts, religious practices. They just don't officially identify with any one religion. Well, many books are coming out now about nuns. Uh, nuns are, are, are kind of the fresh meat uh, for religious evangelism. How does it feel to be so much in demand? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I'm going on a book tour right now. I'm in the midst of it. Uh-huh. And the range of people who show up um, is interesting. A lot of them are actually religious leaders. So that's been an interesting feeling to be somebody who is sort of this public potential convert. That's it. That, that, that's the take. I mean, everyone wants to figure out how uh, uh, all churches, I mean, can get uh, nuns in the pews. Right. And so that's part of that. And that's interesting as it came out in your book of, of a lot of pressure about that, too. Right. A lot of pressure. And then, of course, all the people who are maybe more quiet but who are nuns themselves, and they are curious about religion and want to explore religion, but in a sense are maybe um, reluctant to do so because to walk into a place of worship, there is that you know, perceived idea that you will be pressured to stay or to adopt a set of beliefs. Yeah, it's like going into a used car lot. I mean, you kind of want to look around, but boy, the salesperson comes right on you. Um, but talk about uh, this quest a little bit. How did it get started, and, and, and were you really searching for meaning in religion, as the uh, title of your book says? I really was. I had grown up with nothing, so I really had no concepts of God or what even spirituality meant. I, had, I really had no idea um, I, everything that existed was just a material world for me, and I really longed for the tools and the language 
to talk about something and to think about something other than just the world I saw around me. So it did really start as a genuine quest to to learn in a you know more comprehensive kind of way. And your exploration took uh, four years. Uh, you visited Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and Buddhist communities. Talk a little bit about the breadth of of this search. Not only geographically, but how many different groups did you check out? Oh gosh! So I in my new community where I lived, where I had moved. There are a surprising number of churches. Um, and so there's something called the worship directory in the paper. And so I, I picked that out, and I just sort of looked at it for a while. And it was, I think there were about 50 options just of Christian churches. Mm-hmm. And some of them were, I mean, it spanned from Lutheran all the way to, you know, through the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the you know, every, all the traditional Protestant, the Catholic, um, and then all the way down to sort of like more uh, rock and roll, young rock and roll kind of Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided that I was just going to go to every single one of them. And that alone took two years. Just visiting and the I, Christian churches started, in your town. Yes, just in my community. And then once I got through Christianity... I realized I was going to have to leave my community to do Judaism, Buddhism. I had been a teenager in Los Angeles. All the synagogues in in Los Angeles that I had in my community there, too, that I had just sauntered past all those years as a teenager, and I actually Mm -hmm. go into them. And that represented everything from the the more um, reformed versions of the faith all the way to up to Hasidic, and I do the I do all of them, and then the same with Buddhism. All the places that I had just strolled past as a Berkeley student on my way for a latte, I actually go into them, and that represents many variations, surprising number of variations, because most of um, most of what we conceive of when we think of Buddhism, we think of Zen Buddhism. Mm-hmm. There are variations of Buddhism that range from um, from Zen all the way to something that's more like hot, like Tibetan, all the way to Korean and, and then more monastic versions. Um, and then there are versions of Buddhism that really almost resemble Christianity that um, take the shape of Christianity in terms of having a a Sunday worship service, but it has all this Buddhist filling. So it's really, it's so interesting. I had no idea that there was such a range. And then for Islam, I really struggled because, you know, I was born in Texas. I was a kid in Dallas and Austin. And I found out that while I was paying no attention, Dallas had actually become one of the fastest-growing Muslim populations in the United States. Because I think of Dallas as being a place of great materialism and, and sort of ostentatious displays of wealth. And Islam, as I had come to understand it, was something that was great social equalizer 
If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is Karina Nicola. She's the author of A Nun's Story, N-O-N-E, Searching for Meaning Inside Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam. And she searched a variety of communities, talking the last one about Islam. In fact, you have a section in your book about your, your first day of Ramadan. You started to get right into it. Uh, can you read that part about your first uh, day of Ramadan and the fast and what all that one is about? I would be happy to. Ramadan is an entire month of fasting that um, Muslims around the world do. And it's fasting from sunup to sundown. So here we go. It looked like I would be on my own for Ramadan, even more so since Phil would be on a work trip for the first two weeks. I searched the Internet for tips on fasting, I downloaded an app to my smartphone that uses GPS to alert you when the fast begins and ends each day based on the precise rise instead of the sun where you are. Two things I hadn't thoroughly considered worried me. This Ramadan was falling smack in the middle of summer, and I happen to live far north of the equator. The daylight hours at this time of year are extremely long. They may, they may not be as intense as summer days in Canada or Alaska, but they are much longer than places where day and night stay more evenly divided throughout the year. Here we can have about 18 hours of light during the peak of summer. That this particular Ramadan would be my first was a bit like deciding to start my mountain climbing with Everest. How would I make it so long without even a sip of water, especially as the sun blazed and temperatures climbed well into the 90s. I set those concerns on the back burner to focus on the logistics of coffee consumption. Normally, I drink two large mugs of coffee when I wake up in the morning. I usually sip them slowly over the course of a few hours as I'm working. With my new schedule, I had a couple of options. Online, I learned that many Muslims change their days to wake up early during Ramadan and go about their morning routine before the sun comes up. I could see how this might be a nice alternative, even if the sun rises as early as 5 a.m. in the morning. According to my app, my first day of fasting was to begin at 3.01 a.m. This meant I would have to start my day at about 2.30. Ramadan day one, I set my alarm to see how I felt at that hour. When I heard the beep, I turned on my light and sat up in bed. I guzzled a tall glass of water and downed a container of yogurt I had left on my nightstand. I snapped off the light. No way was I getting up at that hour and starting my day. For me, the only possibility was going cold turkey. I suppose I have the raging headache to thank for distracting me from thirst and hunger on the first day of Ramadan. The morning started okay. I was able to work for a few hours at my laptop, though my thinking felt muddled. The pain set in at about noon and built over the next several hours. By 7 that evening, I was horizontal on the sofa, my eyes shut and a hand at each temple, wondering if my brain was actually pulsating or if it just felt that way. I hear read that if one's health is threatened, Muslims are permitted to relax the standards of fasting. Allah wants people challenged, not packed like sardines into local emergency rooms. After seeing that, I determined I must listen to my body throughout this experience and respond accordingly, even if it meant bending the rules. 
I felt my headache was bad enough to do something about, so I choked down two aspirin with a tiny sip of water. All day I had been focused on the exact moment my app said the fast could be broken, 8.43. I had fantasized about the foods I would consume when the time came. I was planning on making at least two grilled cheese sandwiches and letting my heart's desire guide me in the scooping out of my ice cream. I'd chase it all down with a big bowl of granola before bed. Instead, 8.43 came and went with me sprawled on the bathroom floor, intermittently dry heaving into the toilet. The situation I had created by taking aspirin on an empty stomach was worse than the original pain. As the waves of nausea reached a sickening crescendo, I moaned pathetically and wondered what purpose, if any, my suffering was serving, and if this was anywhere near a typical Ramadan experience. I felt an overwhelming sense of gratitude as the queasiness subsided enough that I could eat a piece of toast. I was content to simply crawl into bed and say goodnight to day one. And that... So that was the first day of about 30 more days. <laughs> Karina Nicola, reading from her book, A Nun's Story, Searching for Meaning Inside Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam, uh, her first day of Ramadan. Uh, <laughs> so was that a spiritual experience? It ended up being uh-huh. an incredible spiritual experience, <laughs> let me tell you. The loneliness I felt um, during that time, because I... What I hadn't considered is that food, drink are in some ways a great comfort. They're almost like friends. And so to not have that was really like wandering in the desert by myself for a really long time. And it brought me to my knees. It made me cry. It it weakened me physically, um, and yet when it, when it was time to eat, the gratitude I felt for the simplest things was overwhelming. And it really, one of the things I learned as I was going through it was that one of the purposes is to make you feel a a sincere compassion um, for people who go hungry, who don't have enough water, clean water, throughout the world. And I understood that in a way that I had never grasped before, to not know when you're going to eat. See, I had the luxury of knowing that when the sun went down, I could eat. But when you don't know when your next meal is coming from or where it's coming from or if you're going to have it, even the loneliness and the despair that that can create is unfathomable. It's just, it's, it's real. It really, I mean, I can just even now thinking about my Ramadan experience can, can make me well up. It, it was that, it was that, much of a challenge, that much of a life-altering experience. In this search or research, uh, you're not simply 
an objective reporter, as you just talked about. Uh, you allow, as I read you, uh, yourself to be uh, you allow yourself to be vulnerable, to be taken in. Um, so irrespective of outside pressure of others to believe in a certain way, is there a push uh, within you as you're going through this uh, to believe something or not believe something, uh, to take it personally? Should I believe this or, or not believe that? Practice this, not that. Um, I really just wanted to know. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know what people got from religion. What was it from very small things like small expressions of gratitude that are that are peppered throughout. So just small practices to really big things like where do we go when we die? What happens? You know, um, what are some of the ideas that people have in their in their imaginations about that? Um, didn't really matter to me, like proving right or wrong. Um, and I think that that's kind of something nuns in ONEs have in common for the most part. We don't really care who's right or what's right. I was open to the wisdom of it, to the imagination of it, to the stories we tell ourselves to make our lives more meaningful, to make us more compassionate, more grateful. Um, And that's what mattered to me. Well, yeah, you know... um and that, I think, in, in some ways, is, is the logjam uh, with organized religion, at least from a uh, perhaps a stereotyped perspective. But I think there's some uh, truth to it, too, that uh, uh, the religious groups do care about their truth claims and, uh, and about the right way oftentimes. And that seems to get in the way uh, of, um, I often think sometimes it wasn't for all of that truth stuff, religious people, um, uh, what they do might be very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that that's what we're seeing with this giant rise of nuns. And even nuns who go to church or go to synagogue or go to mosque, um, nuns, for the most part, we don't care what's true in a mm-hmm. scientific way. even That's even what distinguishes us from atheists. You know, it doesn't really matter exactly because we don't want to pick sides. Mm-hmm. There's some wisdom in each of these, and it's important, and it's not important to us who's technically right. And in fact, that stance of having to be right is what's created so much conflict in our world. And it's not the actual religions and the wisdom and the people who have, over the, over the history of mankind, that sort of need to be right is sort of what this non-movement is rebelling against. You know, I was thinking about the book uh, Life of Pi as I was reading yours and the scene where the boy is yes. confronted by all the various religious leaders because he wants to be all of them, but they all insist that he has to choose. And it seems to me that that's yeah. some of the dilemma of, of the nuns. Right. And I, you know what's interesting, though? I am finding there are religious leaders who they may be grounded in a particular faith, mm-hmm. but they are not as close-minded and 
wedded to theirs being the right way as I had conceived of them. Oh, that's good. I'm glad you found some like that. You did find that in your search. I found some like that. And I think that they are, because of the nuns, Mm -hmm. are having to examine some of their ways and some of the ways that they express things. You know, and as we become more um, knowledgeable about each other's various paths, I think that it's, it's going to open us up. And I hope, I hope that the nuns are an evolutionary step towards that. Hmm. That's very good. Hey, at one point, you quote a passage from the Gospels where uh, Jesus is supposed to have said, Because straight is the gate and narrow the way which leadeth to life, and few be there that find it. Now, I, I, I never have much liked that saying because I thought it meant that the only the, the few and the saved make it to heaven, the rest go down the chute to the fiery furnace. But you came up with a very different uh, interpretation. Can you talk a little bit about your interpretation and how you came to that and what that means? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, because I have no religious background, uh-huh. I could look at this Jesus stuff however I wanted to. Yeah. And it was, it was wonderful. So when I was looking at the things that Jesus said, and so I found that Jesus actually had, you know, was, was addressing these, these issues. Um, and one of the things he was addressing was trying to communicate to people how amazing it was that they were here and that... All they had to do was to be worthy, is to love themselves and to love one another. And so when I read straight is the gate and narrow is the way that make it to life, I'm paraphrasing there, Mm -hmm. to me, Jesus was saying, look, guys, it is amazing that you made it here. It is amazing that we got here, and um, and acknowledging that, and then somehow acknowledging it, like to bring it from from the deep recesses of our consciousness up to the forefront of it, and go, oh my gosh, that is where my so much of my anxiety stems from. That just that alone begins to lessen the anxiety. Yeah, so, I thought that was great. You know what, we, we, we are, it's amazing that we're alive. We've won the cosmic lottery. Now go and yes. live life. You know, yes, and so the, much yeah. anxiety stems from that. And uh-huh. we've got to bring it out into the open so that we can suffer less and love more. There you go. Now, you mentioned atheism, and I want to talk about that for one sec. I got just a couple more questions with you. I'm speaking with Karina Nicolaj. She's the author of A Nun's Story, Searching for Meaning, Inside Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam. The late Christopher Hitchens, one of the new atheists, uh, wrote, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. So after your quest, uh, what do you make of religion? Can you, can you uh, make any kind of generalization about its helpfulness or its hindrance? To human flourishing. Yes. I think religion is the place 
where a lot of wisdom about the human experience is held. I also think religion has been a very effective tool to create distinctions between people, barriers between people, conflict between people. However, religion to me, at its best, push us to see ourselves as the one unit that we really are on this planet. I don't think religion inherently is ruining or is responsible for the conflict. All religion, if you go back to it, to the, to the original wise people, was suggesting the opposite of those things. Karina Nikolaou, A Nun's Story, Searching for Meaning Inside Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam on a Progressive Spirit. Uh, one final question for you. How has this experience changed you? This, this experience has changed me in so many ways. First of all, it's given me, just on a real personal level, like understanding where my anxiety comes from. I mean, you can see people... When you read the accounts of Jesus, you can see people like having panic attacks about their existence. And he's sort of like saying, it's okay. Don't freak out. To know that I'm not alone and to see that sort of on an existential level has been extremely comforting. Um, and then to have just the tools to feel my oneness connection through Buddhism and, my, and to express gratitude, which I really got from Judaism, and then to have the challenge of expanding the tribe to which I belong, which came from Islam, all of these lessons that I learned, it has deepened my understanding of other people, of myself, and it has given me just really basic daily tools it's done a lot for me. And it will do a lot for you if you read her book, A Nun's Story, Searching for Meaning, Inside Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam, winsomely written. Uh, Karina Nicola has been my guest on Progressive Spirit. Thank you for this quest and your book and your vulnerability and, uh, and for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net is the website to get links to podcasts and more information about the show. Progressive Spirit is produced at KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schuck. Be welcome.